Welcome to Mining the Mysteries, a catechetical podcast that explores the depths of our Orthodox and Catholic faith in the English tradition. I'm Matthew Stewart, Digital Media Director for the Anglican Province of America, along with your hosts, Father Wade Miller and Father Randall Russell from St. Philip's Anglican Church in Blacksburg, Virginia. We're glad to have you with us as we dig deeper into the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is Episode 3, Lift High the Cross. Hello, everyone. Welcome back, and thank you for joining us again. This week, we will discuss the processional cross and its place in our liturgy and worship. Father Miller, would you like to tell us a little bit more about why we use the processional cross in our worship? Absolutely. Before I go into that, though, it's, I think, very significant that we're recording this, even though people won't hear it on the day that we're recording it, but we're recording this on September 14th, which, of course, is the feast for the exaltation of the Holy Cross. And the Holy Cross is something that is um, absolutely vital to what we believe, who we are as Christians. And so we're going to be talking about this as it relates. Last time we talked about baptism and how we have to be washed before we come in to the worship of God and and the culmination of that worship being the Holy Eucharist, and then how we're sent back out then to be the body of Christ, to live in this world with the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Now we're going to focus on the cross. And when we when we think about walking into a church and we encounter the bab- baptismal font, then there's a procession. And the procession is always led by the cross. The cross is first, and it is that which leads us then into the sanctuary of God. And so so for the next several minutes, we're hoping that we will bring clarity to this. And for some, especially, again, coming from my background where images were frowned upon. Should a processional cross be used? Should imi- any images be used in worship? And so so let's, let's go at that. Let's tackle that question. Uh, are we allowed to use images in worship? Well, the second commandment does forbid graven images, but it forbids that of the worship of such images. And I'm going to ask Again, my partner in crime here, Father Randall, if he'd read for us the second commandment. Sure. Here is the second commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. Good. So one of the things that's so significant is that last phrase, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. In other words, an act of worship is what is forbidden here. Because as we look at the Old Testament, there were images. And we're going to not exhaust this, but we're going to tackle again, some of these images and and look at these images and how significant they were for the Israelites and how significant they are for the church as well. And I think the first image that we come across is the tree of life. And that is obviously very significant. 
So I'm going to ask uh, Father Randall, if he would, to kind of expound on that as, we, as it relates to our reading of Genesis. Well, before we go into the tree of life, I think creation itself is a image. It's the physical world. God, again, created it. One of the things that has always struck me about Genesis, um, especially when compared to other ancient Near East creation accounts, is that creation is often either an accident or it's the product of a battle of the gods. There's a whole spiritual realm and, and there's the gods and everything. Scripture does not begin that way. When we go to Genesis, it begins with creation. Creation is, again, intentional. God loves creation. And one of the things that's striking in comparing, I think, the, the Hebrews' uh, view of creation compared to all the others at that time in, the, in that area is that you don't really get a heavenly realm. You don't really get angels and all that. You get creation itself, and that itself is an image. It's a physical world that God, God loves. And as you said, going to the tree of life in the midst of the garden, kind of the holy, holy, the holy of holies area, if you will, you have the tree of life. And you actually have another tree, of course, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they're told not to eat. They eat of it. It does give them knowledge, but it gives them death because they disobeyed God. Then they know good and evil. Uh, but the tree of life, it gives exactly what it says. It gives life. And that is like the cross of Christ. When Adam and Eve are um, cast out of the garden, it's a separation from life. It's actually a separation from God who is life. They had the tree of life. Now they have death. They cannot they don't have life without God. They don't have life without the tree of life. And the cross of Christ is our tree of life. Christ is the good fruit, the life-giving fruit that hangs upon that tree. And all of this, you know, again, we've talked about the physical world and how God loves the physical world. You know, again, he created it. Genesis does not begin with this whole spiritual reality. The spirituality is there, but it's linked to the physical world. God's conveying things through images, through means. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting when you think about Genesis and, and especially the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that's the way Scripture begins and the way it ends in the book of Revelation is you have that tree of life again and talks about the leaves of that tree is for the healing of the nations, right? And that is ultimately Christ. That's, that's what it refers to. And there's other, there's other imagery throughout the Old Covenant. We could talk about Israel being led as they made their way in the wilderness by a cloud during the day and then by fire at night. Moses, his encounter with the burning bush, the tabernacle itself, and especially the Ark of the Covenant. All of these images were really representing God's presence among his people, his dwelling among his people. And I think uh, one of the most important, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the most important texts is Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. And Father, would you read that for us as, as, we, um, as we hear it, and then we'll kind of explain what's going on there. But this is a great text as we talk about the processional cross and its relationship to Sure. Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom 
And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, where there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread? So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So <clears throat> here you have... Uh... The people are grumbling against God, and so these there's these fiery serpents that are that are now um, attacking the people of Israel, and 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 so Moses is told to do something, and you know what is it that he's told to do? Make an image. Yeah, to make an image, to put a a a bronze, like a fiery serpent upon the pole. And everyone who looked at that image would then live. So these people that were bit by these fiery serpents, they would look then to this serpent upon a pole, this this bronze serpent, and they would live. Why in the world would God do this, especially if images are forbidden? Why would he do that? Well, the image of the bronze serpent is hype it's it's foreshadowing what's to come and that is christ on the cross the interesting thing with the bronze serpent on the pole is that the thing that is killing them serpents the thing that is killing them also becomes the thing that is saving them they look to the pole they see the serpent which is all around them biting them everything but then they're healed of their infirmities by seeing the image of that serpent and it's like christ on the cross when we look to the cross, when we see Christ, we see the sins of the world being nailed to the cross. And the thing that is killing us, um, our sins, is also not our sins, not that that's saving us, but Christ is saving us. He's, he's, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he is. And one of the things that I find so interesting, when John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, in passages like Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4, what did the priest do when he brought the sacrificial animal out and, and all that? He would lay his hands upon its head. And the idea kind of was he was putting the sins of the people upon the animal, upon the head. And when you look to Christ on the cross, what is on his head? It is a crown of thorns. Going back to Genesis, the curse of Adam, Adam, meaning humanity, mankind. It's, it's literally the curse of mankind being put upon the Lamb of God's head, just as a priest would. And, and that's what we see with the thorns. It's, it's the curse of Adam put upon the Lamb. And we are to look to the cross, we are look, to look to Christ for salvation. And that is what keeps us healed. And that's what continues to lead us through this life. We can't take our eyes off of Christ. Yeah, I think that's very significant. The fact that that which killed the people, these fiery serpents, now they look to the serpent and it's now healing. Jesus takes our sin upon himself and he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so 
now we look to Christ. And, you know, it's interesting, growing up, I was always taught like a crucifix is a very, very Catholic thing, therefore it's a no-no. But, you know, the crucifix now, when we look to that, we don't just see death, we actually see life. He has transformed death into life. And and so that is the significance of the cross. And, uh, and in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, because last time we talked about the significance of the incarnation, God becoming man, God taking upon our flesh. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it says, He, that is Jesus, is the image, and in Greek there, it's literally the ikonos, the image, the ikonos of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. God is, even though Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they hid from God, God does not hide from us. He actually takes our flesh upon himself. And in John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus said to Philip, he says, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? So the significance of this is that God, we do not worship just some kind of invisible phantom spirit. We worship the God who has become flesh, who has taken our humanity upon himself, and that becomes now the cross, becomes our life. And we talked about this last time. We'll talk about this again. But Father, you even said last time in baptism, it's the first time we received the sign of the cross. Well, that becomes now our life, our hope, becomes our purpose. And so it's significant. So the cross is, is front and center of our lives. And in John chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, we see how Numbers 21 now is interpreted by our Lord himself. Would you read uh, verses 14 through 17 of John chapter 3, Father? Absolutely. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So here we have a reference as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. What serpent is that talking about? It's talking about the serpents that were biting and killing them. Yeah. Yeah. So as he lifted up the serpent, that bronze serpent, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, and that whoever believes in him should not perish. So that is the significant part of of why we use a processional cross. The cross is that which is the antidote to our sin because God took our sin upon himself. And so we look to him for our hope, our purpose, and our life. And all of this, again, is, I'll sound like a broken record, but that's okay, because it's significant to why we're even doing this podcast. God has become man in the person of Jesus, so that flesh matters, matter matters, and that when we look to a cross, we're not worshiping an image, we're not worshiping the thing itself, but 
It is that which brings us into an appreciation and a love for what it represents, and that's Christ, and that is significant. So the next thing I want to talk about is now how has the church understood images because as Father Randall and I said the very first introduction episode, and that is we're not teaching anything new. This is not something he and I just kind of came up with in a dark room somewhere. This is the church's teaching. And so the point is, is that the church has said you can utilize images. As a matter of fact, it is very helpful. It is something that should be utilized. But they made a distinction between veneration and adoration. And what's that distinction, Father? Well, adoration is the act of worship, but veneration, I'm out here, Father. Veneration is more of like devotion. Yeah. Veneration is is to treat something with great respect. Uh, Adoration is to actually fall down and and worship. Right. One of the things I, I think about, and this is, I hate the term secular and sacred because really everything's sacred, but in the secular realm, we do have, like in a parade, the American flag passes by. What do you do? You stand up out of respect, out of respect for that symbol. You are showing respect to your country. And this is very, very important because it's one of those things. How do you, how do you teach like a child to love something? How do you teach a child to love God? How do you teach a child love of country? You begin with respect. And so when we see the cross and everything, when we're bowing, we're not worshiping that piece of metal or that piece of wood, but we are showing respect to our God, veneration. Yeah, to what it represents. And and that's a good point, too, uh, not to go off on a tangent, but usually the, the, the practice itself is really what forms and shapes our worship. The understanding oftentimes comes later, right? And that's why in our tradition, we talk about lex orandi, lex credendi. You know, the the rule of worship forms and shapes what we believe. Right, right. Very much so. So, so when we talk about the teaching of the undivided church, and what I mean by the undivided church is until East and West uh, finally split in 1054, uh, but up until that time, there were councils, there were seven actually ecumenical councils that are binding upon at least us in our tradition. And, um, and so the seventh of those councils actually dealt with images. And again, the church does not believe in worshiping images, doesn't believe in worshiping saints. It believes in the veneration of images and saints, but ultimately worship is only to God. But these images, like a processional cross, aids, and they're, they help us. And so when we talk about that, there are a couple of ref- references or books that, that you can look up on your own. Uh, on Divine Images by St. John of Damascus is an excellent book, pretty short and very, uh, very much a, a great book in terms of the biblical understanding of images and, and just what Father and I have been talking about. Another one, On the Holy Icons by Theodore, and I'm going to say this, 
Dude, is the way I've heard it, uh, but I'm sure there's other ways you can say it. But so, anyways, a couple books about that. But but the Seventh Ecumenical Council was significant because, first of all, going back to what we talked about at the very beginning, images is a way of understanding that God redeemed all of creation. So therefore, creation is not bad. Images are not bad. They are actually good if they're used in the right way. And so we talked about Gnosticism. We are not a, a you know, we're not people that just are floating spirits. We have bodies and God took upon our body. And so when we talk about images, they're allowed because we are people that are material beings. Yeah, and I find it fascinating when we talk about the church councils. You know, they're really focused on the person of Christ. When God becomes a flesh and blood man in the person of Jesus Christ, it's it's a complete game changer, right? Um, God, you know, has always worked through physical means, but now he takes on our flesh and blood. Before creation showed his glory, but now in the much more full sense, when he becomes man, God himself Christ is the image of the invisible God, and that's that's a game changer to our worship. So when we talk, uh, you know, the three Abrahamic religions, if you will, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. In Judaism and Islam, you can't have any images, right? And so how is our worship, how is our Christian worship, would it even be different than theirs? And I think we emphatically say yes, because Jesus Christ is Lord, Jesus Christ is God. So that that is the difference between those. That's why they don't allow images, but why we make the distinction, as you said, Father, between adoration and veneration. Um, because we do have images. We do have the Im image of the invisible God, and that's Jesus Christ himself. Yeah. And and also, there was a, a council, Chalcedon had to deal with uh, the relationship of Jesus in terms of his, his two natures, that being uh, he is fully God, 100% God, and fully man, 100% man. And so the church had to deal with what was called the monophysite heresy that just kind of saw that the, the humanity was absorbed in the deity. And so some, some within that tradition also became iconoclasts. In other words, the, the definition of iconoclasts is against icons. The Seventh Ecumenical Council does not just say you can use these. It actually says that every Christian church is to have an icon. And part of that is to combat what Father Randall just said in terms of Judaism, and especially in, in, in the Seventh Ecumenical Council, the rise of Islam, but also even some of what was being promoted within the monophysite heresy. It also, though, speaks to what we know in our day more prominent, and that is kind of this form of Puritanism that extols the Bible to such a level that only Scripture and the reading and hearing of Scripture is the only thing that can be used in worship. And you see this in Puritanism. Um, as Anglicans, we don't believe that. We believe in the authority of Scripture. We believe very much in the authority of Scripture, but we also 
do not worship a book. We worship Christ. And so we believe that the scriptures attest to who Jesus is, what he did. But even within those scriptures, as we've already talked about in the Old Covenant, you have all these different images, you have metaphor, you have all these different things that are giving you visuals. Why would the book give you visuals if it doesn't want you to even have any kind of thing in your mind that would represent Jesus, represent the cross, or any of that? So, yeah, so all that to say, when we, getting back to what we were originally talking about, when you walk into church and you see the baptismal font and oftentimes dipping our fingers into holy water, remembering our baptism and understanding that we only come into fellowship with God through Christ, with whom we are baptized into, and it's the Holy Spirit then that brings us into union with God, um, it is then the processional cross that leads us. Because now, as we receive the sign of the Holy Cross in our baptism, that is to be our life. And this symbol is very powerful because it is now that which leads us into true worship. Again, Father, kind of going back to Numbers 21, the serpent on the pole, you know, which, which is an image that that serpent on the pole is not only going forward, looking forward to Christ on the cross, but I also believe it, it's going back to Moses. Um, you know, Moses had his staff, and when he goes into Pharaoh's court, he lays it down. What does that staff become? It becomes a serpent. This is how Moses led the people of God. And he had his staff, and his staff is, is important. And it's almost like, talked about the, the American flag, but, you know, the king with his royal emblem, the king with his banner. That's how we are being led into worship, you know, following the king with his emblem, you know, raised high. It's his cross. It's an image because, again, we are not Gnostics. The physical world matters. The flesh matters. You know, when we go to Genesis, where's the spiritual? It's there, but it's told through physical means, through creation itself. I mean, we could go further into this. I was thinking about this, even with Genesis, even if we don't, looking at creation and the water and the sky and the trees and, and all that, you know, Adam and Eve, we have marriage. And what does Paul say about that? It's, it's an image of Christ in the church. So these physical things, these symbols, they convey a reality. And we need to keep that in mind because we ourselves are physical. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We, we, we were created in the image of God and we aren't supposed to worship that image. But at the same time, that doesn't mean images are bad. And if they were bad, then we would never have any images. I, I don't even know if we'd have creation, but uh, yeah. So father. Yeah. So, yeah, I think um, bringing this full circle. So when we talk about the processional cross and all that we talked about in terms of understanding images throughout the old covenant and understanding now in Christ, the incarnation, he is, he is the icon us. He is the image of the invisible God. And so we are now led by the cross because Christ is our crucified, resurrected, and ascended Lord. He is the head of the church. He leads us into worship, and then he leads us back out into the world under the banner of the cross. And all of this we received as baptized Christians. We have an identity, 
and the identity is Jesus Christ, and it is his cross. That is why we make the sign of the cross. We don't do it as a good luck charm. We do it as those who understand our allegiance is to Christ as Lord, and we now, we fight under his banner. And when I say fight, I don't mean going out and picking fights, but what I mean is fighting with sin, death, and the devil, fighting against the passions and seeking to live a life of holiness because of Christ. So I think that pretty much wraps up what we wanted to talk about as it relates to the processional cross. And I thought on this day, again, this is being recorded on September 14th, the feast day for the exaltation of the Holy Cross. I've asked Father Randolph, he would, to close us with the collect for for this feast today. Lord be with you. And with, and with thy spirit. spirit. Let us pray. O God, who by the passion of thy blessed Son hast made the instrument of shameful death to be unto us the sign of life and peace, grant us so to glory in the cross of Christ that we may gladly suffer shame and loss for the sake of the same, thy Son, our Lord. Amen. All right, that wraps up our third episode. We'd love to have you join us again next week. And hey, if you ever have any questions or comments, just shoot us an email at podcast at stphillipsblacksburg.org. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.